Welcome again to Playing with the Past. In this episode, Jason Matthews, designer of games that include Twilight Struggle, 1989 Dawn of Freedom, and 1960 The Making of the President, speaks with my wargaming class at Clarkson University. I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear and that you get as much out of it as I and my students did. My name is Jason Matthews, obviously, and I uh, I live here in Washington, D.C., uh, where in real life I'm a, a lobbyist. Um, I had spent 13 years working as a Hill staffer in the Senate, and so you will notice, I think, that most of my games have something to do with the intersection of politics and conflict, and that obviously is uh, on a, there are two reasons why that is largely true. First of all, it's something that interests me, obviously, and it's kind of been part of my career path. Uh, when I served in the Senate, my boss was a member of the Armed Services Committee and I was her staffer on that committee. And the interaction between the political arms of government and um, our military decision-making and strategy was part of my job. And so I um, got deeper into that arena. But it was also something that I found to be very much missing in historical game design. A lot of, you know, the tradition of war games um, which is kind of the origin of the modern board gaming hobby, was to ignore politics altogether and pretend that it didn't exist. And to a very important degree, this was sort of the preference of the military. Um, politics to them always seems like some kind of lightning bolt that strikes their perfect plans from out of the blue or uh, a hazard or an obstacle that needs to be overcome. But uh, as von Clausewitz, the famous military historian put it, these politics and, and warfare are two sides of the same coin, or as he said, um, politics or warfare, or uh, warfare is politics by another means. And you can't actually divorce the two things effectively, or if you are divorcing the two things from each other, you're not simulating the actual event. Uh, and there are very few wars and very few campaigns that aren't actually motivated by politics. Gettysburg being a prime example. Uh, when Robert E. Lee moved into the North and took the Civil War into the North, the object of that campaign wasn't to control Harrisburg. The object of that campaign was to influence the federal elections and get Lincoln tossed out of the presidency. And a lot of warfare and a lot of, um, a lot of even uh, both tactical, operational, strategic um, decision-making really has a political objective rather than simply a military one. So that's kind of what I have been focused on. In the case, uh, I really got my start because um, my colleague on Twilight Struggle, Ananda, had 
been a play tester for GMT, and this was back in the days before things like Board Game Geek existed, and there was, um, well, it still exists, kind of a message board called ComSim World, and Ananda was super active in there and got to be a play tester, and he kept bringing games back, and I was his play test opponent for most of them. And we played a lot of great things. Um, Wilderness War, uh, we were playtesters on Wilderness, Wilderness War by Volko Runke. But um, the games we started seeing were getting both longer and um, worse. And for both of us, uh, we were hitting a point in our life where eight-hour games, 12-hour games, 13-hour games, we just couldn't play them anymore. Uh, we, we didn't have the time, couldn't get them on the table. And so even though Twilight Struggle now is kind of considered a long game, when we designed it, it was an effort to shift wargaming radically back towards a shorter time play. So a, a game of Twilight Struggle shouldn't really take you more than three hours, uh, which I know may sound like a very long time, but when Ananda and I designed it, it, it was very common for a war game to take eight, 12, 10 hours. And since we no longer had that time to devote, uh, we wanted to kind of shift the state of the art back towards shorter, punchier, um, games that uh, could be finished in an evening and and that was one of our main design objectives the other the other design objective was to kind of cover a conflict that at the time had never been covered as it actually occurred we had uh, when i was growing up during the cold war there was a whole subgenre of games as popular as any other genre of games at the time that were about an imaginary conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, there would be dozens of these games about, uh, you know, the Soviets invading West Germany, the, a conflict in East Asia between the Soviet Union and China and the United States and Japan. Like it was. It was as popular as World War II or the Civil War as a topic when I was young. Um, but after the end of the Cold War, those games mostly stopped appearing and no one had designed a game about the Cold War as we actually ended up experiencing it, which is to say that it was a, a political conflict uh, with, of course, proxy wars and, and, and elements of direct military conflict, but, um, but more so about a political struggle to influence um, political actors around the world. And there had been a few games about, uh, a few games that approached the subject in this way. They weirdly frequently were multiplayer games, even though this seemed to us to be a very much a kind of a binary conflict between um, two opponents. But um, so we addressed it. And um, we also 
had the good fortune of doing it right at a time when there was a little bit of um, strange Cold War nostalgia. And I say that because uh, when Twilight Struggle came out, 9-11 and uh, the world had become a very uncertain place all of a sudden. And a lot of people kind of missed the context of the Cold War, where we understood our opponent, we knew what they were capable of, we knew what they were apt to do. And during the era of the kind of global war on terror and the um, chaos in the Balkans, everything seemed suddenly unsettled. And uh, it, it's, it's odd to say that people missed the Cold War because it was not such a wonderful time to live through. But um, but it did seem to be the case, nevertheless. Uh, since that time, I have mostly focused on games, card-driven games, um, similar to Twilight Struggle. And by card-driven, I mean a game where um, the actions that you take are related to a card that you will play. And our games mostly have this kind of dilemma do I want to take operations points, which allows me to choose from a menu of um, a menu of actions, or do I want to implement this event, uh, and the event will have some kind of rule change or uh, superpower that you're able to do that is outside the rules, and you have to decide between the menu of events or, or the menu of actions or this little superpower that um, that is on the card. In our games, uh, since we're very interested in, and concerned about thematics and conveying the nature of the conflict through these cards, we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the actions and activities are included in the event and uh, they reflect and recall the actual historical events so that we help suspend disbelief and get people um, in the mood and mode of the decision makers of the time. And that's our little, that's our little gimmick, I think, for trying to, trying to um, make gaming an immersive experience and make gaming a narrative experience so that when you finish a game of Twilight Struggle or 1960 or 1989, you, you have both a sense of what that time period was like, but also um, you feel a little bit like you were in the shoes of the protagonists. Uh, and the reason that that matters so much for us is, first of all, we're interested in because most Americans don't know very much about history, we're very interested in teaching them something as effortlessly as we can. Um, you know, if you hand them a if you hand them a textbook, we're not going to get very far, as it as we all know now. But if you teach them something without them knowing, um, you know, we we get a little more success. And since uh, most Americans don't know a, a ton about their history or the operation of their government, these are both things that uh, I'm trying to make a small contribution towards. 
And the other thing, as it turns out, because of our the way our brains are wired to absorb stories and relay information that way, it just turns out that games that have a narrative arc and a flow like a story are more memorable. And you you remember a, a an interesting different game of Twilight Struggle more than you would remember uh, a Euro game where the theme is kind of pasted on and there isn't really a narrative arc. It's just sort of do these five things, rinse, wash, repeat. Um, and that I think is one of the um, design advantages of the kind of gaming space that I'm operating in. And um, I guess that that kind of should give you a sense of um, of what I'm working on and what I'm interested in. Um, at this very moment, I'm working on another sequel to The Twilight Struggle that is focused on um, the relationship between India, Pakistan, and China during the Cold War. Um, and I have I always have like three or four projects more than I'm actually accomplishing, but we'll we'll see where I get on any of those. But um, I'm happy to kind of take questions, uh, talk about any of those designs or the design process. Uh, if you want to know what it's like to be a lobbyist in Washington, I can talk about that as well. And um, we'll take it from there. All right. Thank you. Um, very interesting. I hadn't, hadn't really thought about the fact that Twilight Struggle was a, a short game at the time that it came out. Uh, <laughs> I think sometimes the pendulum swings the other way. Now I want this sort of monster that's going to take me, you know, 190 hours to play or the rest of my life. Um, but no one has time for that, you know, as, as you say. Um, and I really, you know, I think in that mind, I can, I can also see the logic of the, the two sort of sequels to it that you've produced, the Twilight Strong ones, which, you know, they marketed almost as lunchtime games that you could fit into a, a much shorter space of time. Um, I think you know, one of the things we've talked about as a class is, the, the investment you're asking a player to put into something as well. I think that's really interesting. But I'm going to throw this open to students in the room as to what questions they have for Jason. Uh, how do you commonly model political conflict? With warfare, there's a lot of ways to directly model how that's resolved. But with politics, it's a lot more nebulous. So there's, I think there's two interesting things about that because for years, um, the the kind of weird engineering heads that have been designing war games have been like, well, we have all of these, um, we have all of these statistics in military conflict. Uh, we have numbers of men, we have ranges of fire, uh, the amount of equipment, blah, 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 blah. So we can shrink that down and provide a, a counter with um, <clears throat> with um, you know some factors some um, numerical factors that relate to that and that would all be true and and would make their point more valid if that's what they actually did but as it turns out they fudge that stuff all the time. And the reason that they fudge that stuff is because the outcome of battles 
frequently does not turn on the number of men or the amount of equipment or the right kinds of tanks. It, 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 uh, and the kind of the classic example of this is France in World War II. If you did, if you put Germany and France up against one another on purely a number of the number of tanks, the number of men, the French should, if not hold their own, beat the Germans back in 1940 with no trouble. Um, that doesn't happen historically. And so <clears throat> war game designers often fudge the strength of German units in order to make them more powerful so that the historical results can occur. What happened actually in that war is that doctrine, which is this abstraction, you know, who, who understands how to use their tanks better? That is what comes, that is what causes French defeat. And so even these war game designers are really incorporating a very abstract concept into those numerical, um, those numerical uh, chits that they use to represent military units. The nice thing about politics, this doesn't really apply in the Twilight Struggle context, but the nice thing, the nice thing about a game like 1960 is that there's no abstraction whatsoever. Um, you, you win or lose an election. There are electoral points that are set. If anything, it's much more concrete in that context than it is in a military con uh, context. Now, when you're talking about uh, a, a game like Twilight Struggle, where you're placing influence that is quantified, but is also an abstraction, that was actually like uh, the genius, the, the bit of genius that I stole from Mark Herman, who designed a game about the American Revolution, originally called We the People, but now Washington's War. And he, in a way, uh, this isn't exactly true, but in a way he was the, he was the first person to um, equate the political influence with military uh, power. It, it's both an abstraction. And so in retrospect, looking backwards, you can quantify it just as easily uh, the application of political power as you can the application of military power. And so we came up with these little influence chits that you put down. Um, and that was the, the trick that we stole for uh, Twilight Struggle and, and applied much more broadly than he did. Um, and, you know, so I, I think uh, as a game designer, you can make a judgment call particularly if you're doing a historical game uh, based on the outcome, who, who had more effective politics, who had more effective diplomacy, and how, how did that uh, manifest itself? Uh, I, I suppose I, I have a question. Um, thinking of you know, games like, like Struggle, you know, I find often as, as someone who writes about history, one of the big challenges is what you can't include because there's not space. Uh, and not just what you can include, and, and you know, particularly with the way that your, your cards work with events. So I just wonder if you could sort of expand a bit on how you made the decisions about what, what events you were going to include uh, in that, and then you know, the phases that you put together in, in there as well. 
so there uh, that was really the chore of the design um and twilight struggle is is a different game than when we started um i think in general there's a uh, there's this notion that designers start with too much and you need to edit away. And that was certainly true in our case. One aspect that we just, that came through through playtesting, uh, Twilight Struggle once had a much more robust military component to it, but we found that war gamers could not resist relying on the military component and ignoring the diplomatic component. And then you warp the game so that it no longer looks like the Cold War because you know the war doesn't break out. So we we had to take those decisions away from players so that they would model the history better. Um, the the other thing that we decided early on is that we were going to we were going to design a game that resembles the Cold War in its cartoonish. Uh, conception, which is to say that there's the domino theory is real and it works. And we know if you take a course in political science, you'll know that the domino theory was nonsense. But um, in a weird way, it doesn't matter that it didn't work because the policymakers during the Cold War thought it did work or that it might work. And so they acted as if it was true, even if it wasn't true. And so to a certain extent, the reality matters less than trying to put the players in the position of decision makers at the time. Uh, the, the third thing that we decided to do early on was that almost all the events, we sort of ignore the fact that England, France, uh, Poland, China, all of these other countries are actually important actors of their own inside the Cold War occasionally doing their own thing. We pretend like that that is not the case. Um, it's really only the Soviet Union and the United States moving pawns on a chessboard. And uh, that's an, it's a nice metaphor for the way the Cold War works. But if you study the Cold War, it's also kind of nonsense. That is, it's not the case. There are, there's a ton of nuance to everything that is happening. Um, I have kind of a philosophy about um, conveying history in in board game design. If you, I don't know if you, in Japan they have uh, kabuki theater, and in kabuki, all of the actors are painted with makeup that is hugely dramatic. And while that is a, it has a kind of a cultural custom to it, the reason that it was ultimately true was because in an era of theater that there weren't microphones and whatnot, you had to be able to see what the actor, who the actors were and what they were doing from the way back. So everything is extra dramatic and extra highlighted and just extra full stop. I kind of feel like conveying history in a board game is the same. You have to, you, you can't get lost on nuance because it doesn't convey. And if anything, it might confuse the narrative that you're trying to tell. I, I think that you should identify a few important 
historical points that you're trying to get a, get through and then just pound on them so that when uh, a player who comes to your game with their own preconceptions of history or their, or worse, a complete lack of knowledge about it, will be able to take away the points that you were making. How do you um, start a game? Like, what would be your opinion on starting a game that's not based off of a historical event? Like, if it was like, like a loosely historical event? So I was, uh, just last night I had a designer. Uh, we, we host a little event in Washington called War Game Wednesdays at our local, um, our, our nice game store here. And uh, we're lucky because the Pentagon is here and we have so many political types. Uh, we have a ton of game designers here. And last night we had a designer uh, who, published his first design and it's called World Breakers. And it's um, based in an alternative history version of uh, kind of the Mongol era. Um, and, you know, it's the Mongols and the Indians and the Persian empire. And um, it includes kind of a, a magical substance that he's, um, that is the economic engine to the game. And um, it's a fantastic game. And as you say, it has a little bit of, it has, it has some real history in it, uh, but then it has this fantastical component. And when I, I had played it before, but I hadn't talked to him about it. And I hadn't realized that what he was trying to do the story that he was he was trying to play a kind of a science fiction game where he was making a commentary about something that's happening in the modern world but using um using a kind of a historical veneer to hide his point and the thing that he wanted to talk about was the mining of cobalt by children in in the Congo and other places in Africa, and uh, you know if you if you don't know what's happening um, and how your cell phones are made, um, some kind of truly horrifying things are occurring in the world that involve children uh, digging cobalt frequently with their bare hands and and dying. Uh, at very early ages because it's a terribly toxic thing that they're doing. And, uh, and the world just kind of keeps going. And, you know, I've got my iPhone here, uh, which has some of it in. I'm sure most of you have one sitting on your desk and uh, we don't, we don't care that much. And that was the, that was the thing, that was the point that he was trying to make with this game uh, and this fantastical element that he designed was um, the fantastical element that he designed was a replacement for cobalt that, you know, all of these societal advances occur because of it, but children are dying because they're the ones who um, are mining it. And, um, 
I think what that illustrates is you don't you don't need to um, you don't need to hook your story in a game to actual events to make an important point. It's quite possible to convey an important point in a in a fantasy or sci-fi setting or any other setting that you like. Um, and um, I I think that that kind of approach is not just um, something to look at, but in the case of something that's very hard to discuss, probably the best way to look at it. I really, um, when I when I start a design, I decide those things up front, like how how long. That's kind of how I begin my design process by deciding the parameters. How long is it going to be? How many players? Is it going to have a map? How big is the map going to be? Is it going to have a deck? How many cards? And I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I remember in nineteen when we were designing nineteen sixty, literally sitting down counting how long it took to play a card and then working backwards from that um, to to be like okay well we're trying to get this game to be like an hour and a half so we know that twilight struggle has a 200 card deck that means we probably can't have much more than 100 and blah 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 and then we also played to see how long it take, took us and, and reverse engineered it. Um, it doesn't matter what you do, you will encounter some people who can play much faster than average or much, and then a lot more people who will play much slower than average. But, you know, if you, you can only aim for that kind of middle space. But yes, it, in, our, in my case, I have typically physically uh, re-engineered it in order to figure out how long a game is going to play um, and, and start with that as a benchmark. And then you can obviously through play testing, you'll get a better sense if you, if you've hit your mark and if you're not, you know, what, what kind of adjustments you need to make to get closer to the time. Uh, how do you, you know, come to a decision about the number of players? Uh, if you're doing three or five or one or two or otherwise, um, so I have made exactly one multiplayer game and for me, it was a, a terrifying headache. And the, the reason, the reason for it is because I'm using these, uh, there are a bunch of reasons, honestly, but the, one of the core reasons is I'm, I'm using these card driven games, which means that there is an, always an unstated reading phase everybody has to read the cards in their hand, they have to figure it out. Well, if you don't want a game to drag on ad nauseum, you have to tighten that as much as possible so that people aren't just like sitting, shuffling through their cards. Uh, it's cute when it's player versus player because you can kind of read your cards while your opponent is going. But if there are five of you or four of you and you're all kind of just like reading your cards, there's way too much dead time for my taste actually there are there are card driven games that are designed like this here i stand comes to mind which is a game about the reformation and um 
they just don't care. They're, they're totally fine that it takes six hours to play. And, you know, you just know what you're getting into when you sit down. Um, but for me, since that doesn't work in my own lifestyle, I'm not interested in designing a game that does that. Um, so the other problem with multiplayer games are what I would call the classic issues with multiplayer war games. Um, there are several, one of which is like, why don't you two fight and I'm gonna stay out of it uh, and turtle. And so I'll win by doing nothing, which is not a, a very you know, a satisfying victory condition. And then uh, there is kind of a, um, a problem with if you have set victory conditions, everybody will pile on the leader to prevent them from getting to those set victory conditions. And then you will um, make the game go on forever because no one will ever be able to attend, attain the, the set victory conditions. Um, there are other problems with multiplayer conflict games, but those are some of the classics that have to be avoided if you're gonna try and design a good game. And so I've, I've done it once, like I said, it was uh, Founding Fathers, which is a game about the constitutional convention and adopting the constitution. And, you know, there are, there are interesting tricks that I've seen in a bunch of games. Um, one of which is like you can sort of hide victory points so that no one is quite clear who's the winner. Um, there are ways to limit who you can attack. So even if you would like to attack the person who's in first place, the game forces you to either ally or um, oppose certain, uh, certain opponents just based on either geography or some other, um, some other feature that they're, um, they're imposing on players. And um, sometimes there's kind of, I, there was a, an older game um, that had an interesting King of the Hill mechanism where you, everybody was trying to get to the central spot and only one person could be there for a certain period of time. But if you manage to survive to however many turns on as King of the Hill, then you would win. Um, I, and I've seen other innovations, but, um, but I do think that designing multiplayer games, especially if they have asymmetry, is hard. And that makes it harder in the historical context because very few conflicts are a situation where both sides are equal or that both sides have the same capacities. They're almost always asymmetrical. So you have to figure out how to model those asymmetries while keeping a game balanced and fun. And the more players you add or the more countries or whatever you add to your game, the more of that adjustment you have to make and it just gets harder and harder, I think. Uh, I say that there are some games that do it amazingly well, but um, I do think that this is a gigantic design challenge to undertake. Unless you're just, if you're doing a Euro game where you know everybody starts out and you have exactly the same capacity and everything is exactly even, then 
you know, I think it's a relatively straightforward, um, a, well, a relatively straightforward task, but history almost never works that way. The world doesn't work that way. And so <clears throat> you've got to be very clever um, when getting at those problems. How do you deal with control of information in your game? How do I deal with the flow of information in my games? Well, I um, control of information. Oh, the control of information. Um, so, decks, the using cards um, assists greatly in the in the flow of information because you have a default setting which is you know, I have this many cards and you know, um, if you know what's in the deck, um, you, because you've played before, you'll have a certain sense of what I might have. And I've got, I've got my hand, which tells me what you don't have if we're drawing out of the same deck. And, um, and the fun part as a designer is then you can start playing with that and um, simulating certain historical events or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be an historical event, but you can start playing with this level of information and, um, and telling your opponent some things so that they can evolve their strategy based on what choices that they know you're making. Um, and in Twilight Struggle, uh, we have a gigantic deck and we divide it into three separate eras so that um, kind of historic, the, the historical narrative we're telling is happening in the, not precisely the correct order, but closer to the correct order. But that is also a bit of important information because you, you know that you're not going to pull a Gorbachev card in the first uh, hand because He's not available. But I, I have done some radically different things with um, player information. Um, in Campaign Manager, you, it is a, you create your deck in front of your opponent. And so um, you, start with, uh, you start with a deck of 45 cards and you flip over three and choose one. So your opponent has a very strong sense of what you have elected to uh, construct into your deck and they're making choices and you're making choices at the same time. Um, and so there's um, an interesting feedback loop that I think uh, successfully emulates the creation of a campaign strategy um, in that game. So you know, you, uh, to a certain extent, I think this issue relies a bit on in the circumstance that you're simulating, how much information does your opponent have about you? Um, in a political campaign, they have quite a bit. In the Cold War, we were bubbling into misunderstanding all the time. So how 
how would how you represent that in design how much information your opponent can get about you and how valuable is that information i think you have to scale that up or down depending on the situation uh, what, do you, what do you mean by your idea? Perhaps a, a subject uh, really covered in the Yeah, okay. So you guys are too young to know that this is even a distinction. But um, <laughs> when I, there have been multiple eras of game design already. And I was born in 1970, which was the beginning of the end of the first era of game design, which was just war games, basically. Uh, gaming was started by a guy named, modern gaming was started by a, game, a guy named Charles S. Roberts. He founded a company called Avalon Hill uh, here in the Baltimore area. And um, it was the first instance of games about the military that were for fun. Um, there, there have been um, obviously games that have been developed uh, for the use of the military for kind of strategy development and training commanders and that sort of thing. But the origin of the creation of this weird hobby was that. Uh, so when I was young, the next thing that happened was role-playing games and that D&D shows up, which D&D is actually also weirdly an outgrowth of wargaming. It started as a kind of a miniatures game that took off in this unusual direction. So um, role-playing gaming, while wargaming doesn't disappear at all, role-playing gaming dominated right up until the early 90s, I would say, and that's when Magic the Gathering was invented and we went into this card driven game era or a card card game era mm -hmm. rather collectible card game era um which obviously also still exists and also is a huge sub hobby of its own and then sometime in the mid 90s um and i i can't quite explain to you why this happened the way it happened but um the the germans the Germans have been doing their own thing. Um, in Germany, the um, video game, video games never took off in quite the same way that they did in the United States and Japan and other parts of Europe. And what that meant was teenage boys did not disappear from their homes, uh, you know, and, and go sit in their room and play a video game immediately after dinner. And so there was this weird space for family entertainment um, that was occupied by these kind of easy, short multiplayer games. And the, the quintessential example is Settlers of Catan, uh, but obviously there are tens of thousands of others now. Um, but that was the, the hallmark. So mom, dad, brother and sister would sit down after dinner and they would play a game like Settlers. And um, that's what I mean by a Euro game. Um, I think the hallmarks of their design are that they don't have player elimination. They frequently don't have direct conflict. They're relatively short. 
and the thematics matter less than the mechanisms. That That's kind of the definition of one. Um, and they are currently what dominates the gaming hobby. And uh, around the 90s, uh, a company called Mayfair in Illinois imported three games, one of which was Settlers of Catan, and um, they exploded shortly thereafter in the United States as the kind of people who had been playing you know, Monopoly and Scrabble uncovered a better kind of game. Um, I think that's an interesting question. Um, I, I do, uh, as playtesting has moved more and more online and there are more and more um, options for how to go about that, it has made it much easier to record um, the level of, you know, uh, like for last, the last game that I produced, almost all the playtesting was online. I knew not only how many turns they'd played and on what turn someone won and who, who was the winner and what side won, and I would be able to collect meaningful statistics about play balance. And then you can see um, a bunch of things that are important to the design process, like, oh, okay, well, if the Russians are gonna win, they have to win, they're gonna win within the first turn and they're gonna win by this mechanism and uh, the Americans will win on X turn, blah, 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 blah. And none of this used to be true. Uh, when I, I first started, designing games, you would send physical playtest kits out to uh, playtesters, and maybe they would report back every three or four months with, you know, things that they'd observed, and they might, they might tell you how many games they played and, and what the impact was, but you, you were guessing as much as anything, and you had to do a lot of your own in-person playtesting so that you could get a better sense of, of, of that um, outcome. I think, you know, getting a game to 50-50 is probably not worth your time. Um, I aim for 45-55 and that's close enough. Um, and then you might tell someone in the rules, the experienced player should play X side and the inexperienced player should play Y side because they're easier to play. I was, uh, as I mentioned, this designer I, last night, he was talking about a problem that I have encountered many times, which is if you design a symmetry into a game, which means the two sides don't play exactly the same, they have, a, they have different approaches, they might have different um, victory conditions. It's frequently true that one side is easier to play. It, it's not to say that their chances of winning are different. It's just one side has a more straightforward strategy to victory and the other player has, uh, has like a more subtle approach that is required. And what happens is that in the modern hobby, players only play a game a couple of times. So it's very easy for them to conclude that your game is imbalanced 
because they don't actually play enough to master the strategy. And I, I don't know exactly what to do about that problem. Um, mostly I just tell people, no, you need, your strategy is not that good. You need to play more. And I, and I only know that because I have these, this record of a thousand games played online that tells me what the play balance actually is. But, um, but you know, if you're consistently getting a win on one side um, and it's out of that skew of 40, 45 to 55, then I absolutely would adjust the victory point requirements to get somewhere closer to 50-50. But um, as with all game design decisions, you frequently end up with unintended consequences. So you tweak this victory condition and then suddenly you have the opposite problem. And um, now the other side is winning 70% of the time and you have to make another set of adjustments. So um, it, it, it inevitably is a little bit laborious. Uh, I'm, I'm playing, a, I, I got addicted during COVID to a video game called uh, Crusader Kings 3, which as you say, has, um, it has accomplishments but no victory conditions and you don't win. There's no winning at the end. Um, a lot of you, this kind of go, gets back at the question of a definition of a game. A lot of people would debate that, well, if you don't have a victory condition, it's not really, if you can't win, it's not a game. Um, and I don't know what I think about that, but I will say that um, this uh, the the thing that makes Crusader Kings three so good is that it has this incredible narrative arc that I obviously like in gaming, and so I you end up in a situation where you tell yourself what winning is, and maybe in a weird way, that's more simulative of life and how the world works than um, an objective victory condition which doesn't really exist in life. Like what is the what are the victory conditions of Ukraine? What will a win for Ukraine or Russia look like? In, in a certain sense, it will depend on what the protagonists decide what a win is. And, and so I, I think there's really something to that. Um, in, and it, it does avoid this um, artificial thing that we put into a lot of games about conflict. So um, the question is, um, how do I approach the outcome how do I approach outcomes in a game that are not the historical outcomes? Like for instance, Nixon winning the election in 1960. And um, I think interestingly, a, a lot of historical events are not the most likely outcome. Um, and I, th I think you have to incorporate this into the game design. The historical outcome has to be only one of the potentialities, 
but what were the others and how likely were those outcomes vice, vice the thing that actually ends up happening? And um, in, in the election of 1960, which is one of the closest elections in American history and squeaker close, you know, that game tends to be very tight. And so I, I'm totally comfortable with Nixon winning that election at any point in time. Um, but the way the Civil War, for instance, plays out is probably the is probably a, a mean case for how the Confederacy was going to um, was going to perform. If anything, the war should have been over much more quickly than it was. They catch so many breaks. Uh, and through various flukes and mistakes that the union makes. Um, but I think in reality, uh, they were always doomed to failure. And so, okay, was it possible that the Confederates would have taken Washington early in the war and the Civil War would have ended with a Confederate victory? I think it's possible, but I think the chances of that happening in re historically were very slim and they should be very slim in your game design, which means that if you want to design a game about the Civil War and you want both sides to have equal chances at victory, you have to, um, you have to design the victory conditions in such a way that ultimate Confederate defeat is likely. Terrific. Well, thank you guys for the excellent questions. I hope you have a terrific semester and uh, Good luck with your game design projects. Um, this is a, a super fantastic course. I wish we'd had one when I was in high school. Um, and uh, if you decide to go further in all this, uh, look me up. But there are also um, a lot of great resources for game designers that were not available when I was younger. Uh, break my game clubs all over the country to go and test game designs and uh, a bunch of game design competitions now that are worth taking a look at, even if you only design one game in this course and then wanna see how it fares in competition. But thank you again for having me and um, have a great semester.